Good morning, everybody. I'm Marcus Matthews. I think we've all uh, corresponded one way or another. Um, I've been organizing this event. And welcome to you all to uh, our second Australian uh, Gold and Hard Money uh, Conference. Our meeting last year was uh, centered around the ideas of uh, Professor Fekete and um, we're very fortunate that the professor is able to uh, make the trip out here again uh, and he will be uh, with us today and he will be uh, speaking to those of us who are going to stay for the full seminar uh, through to Thursday. We have a slightly broader range of uh, speakers this year than uh, last year um, coming from all over the world. The professor of course from Hungary, we have uh, Australians we have um, Sandeep Jaitley from the UK, we have uh, people also from the US and from, from uh, Canada. So we're looking forward to a very uh, wide range of uh, presentations. Today's talks uh, are going to be focused more on the investment side than the, uh, the theoretical ideas um, behind them. So without further ado, I'd like you to welcome our first speaker, Dan Denning, and we'll get underway. Thank you very much, uh, Marcus, and thanks to the, uh, everyone at the Gold Standard Institute for putting this event on. Uh, Marcus wrote me, I think, probably four or five months ago, and uh, I saw these guys put on an event uh, last year, and I think it's a great idea. And this is a very good crowd. In fact, I think uh, at, at a recent conference in New Orleans, there were uh, the New Orleans Gold Conference in the States, which is one of the biggest gold shows uh, of the year and has been for 20 years. I think there were only around 300 people this year. So uh, in some ways, because it's not a big show yet, means that uh, there's some upside in gold. If there were uh, 400 people here, I'd be worried. But the fact that it's still a small crowd means we've got, we've got a ways to go. So uh, I wasn't sure what to focus my talk on today, so I was going to take a fairly uh, big picture perspective and I'll explain to you in a moment uh, what I'm going to talk about, and then hopefully there'll be some time for questions at the end. But uh, I've never been to Canberra before. I flew in last night, and I, I had a walk downtown, uh, and I walked around this morning, and I was trying to figure out what it reminded me of. And it reminded me a little bit of Washington, D.C. I, I, I went to college in Washington, D.C. Obviously, there's a lot of similarities, and none of them are good. But uh, <laughs> then I remember that it reminded me of another place. In 2004, I came to Australia and I went out to Kalgoorlie. I was surprised that the brothels were out there, right, uh, right out in open space for everyone. And I, I thought that feels the same. It feels just like it's a very clean, well-lighted brothel. But that said, I think this is an excellent place to have a discussion about gold and, and gold as an investment, gold as money, and what's going on in the markets. So what I want to do today. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, I had to start over. For, the, for about the past five years, uh, I've been based in the States and uh, briefly in London and Paris before I moved over here in 2004. And I worked for a US-based uh, financial publisher. And starting in about 2003, I was basically giving the same speech everywhere I went. And I was talking about what I called money migration. Uh, and the principles uh, seemed pretty radical at the time because I was telling people after I gone on this around-the-world trip that the, uh, the Western welfare states, which I included Western Europe, the United States, uh, and to some extent Japan, were going bankrupt because of demographic problems. 
and because their economies weren't performing as well as the emerging markets, and that labor and capital were moving east, so the most in, uh, exciting investment opportunities were going to be there. And this was in 2004, so it was just, I think, about a year after the commodities uh, prices bottom, the commodities index, but the, the competition for natural resources was increasing, but supply was not. Although that's not as true now as it was then, supply has increased for some commodities. And this was the most controversial one that uh, people either didn't understand or simply didn't believe was possible four or five years ago, that the, the dollar standard, the, the US dollar status as the world's reserve currency was in the process of ending. And uh, it was a hard concept to explain because most people take it for granted, in the states anyway, that there is a dollar standard, that they're not aware of what it means. Or It's not often, Marcus and I were having this discussion on the phone, there aren't a lot of times in the modern world where ordinary people going about their ordinary everyday business have to question the concept of what money is. It happened in the 1970s, and then people forgot about it, and the last 20 years have been such a boom that people go about their everyday business and no one stops to ask, what kind of financial system do we have? Is it based on sound money? And what, what is money? But this is one of the times that we have to ask that question. And the last reason I put it on there is I think that for each of us as individuals, uh, there's tremendous risks to your money, uh, whether it's your investment portfolio, or your property, or your relationship with your government. So how you come out of this period uh, will say a lot about how enjoyable your financial future is. And that's why when I made that point, I think investors started to take it very seriously. So when I started going over this presentation, again, I, I just started from scratch. My background is not in finance. I, I, I started working for a financial publishing company in 1997, but prior to that, I had just come out of a master's degree program in the liberal arts at St. John's College in New Mexico. So my background was in literature and history. And in those disciplines, what you did is you read a lot, you talked a lot, you asked questions, and through that process of asking questions and talking about things, patiently winnowed away what made sense and what didn't, and, and eventually you might reach some kind of conclusion. So when I, when I thought about what I was going to say here today, I, I did the same thing. I made a list of questions. And these are questions that, that I'm getting from the readers of our newsletter, The Daily Reckoning. Uh, and they're obvious questions. Is the global financial crisis over? Uh, if so, what have we learned from it? Uh, if not, what's going to happen next? Uh, when will it finally end and why and how will it end? Uh, what does gold have to do with all of this and what should you do? That's the most important question. Uh, so in this presentation, I'm going to go through those um, uh, questions one by one, but I'm going to do them in the context of five monetary and financial events that I think will help us answer these questions. Now, if you're not interested in that, you should probably get up and leave because uh, there are people who say that you should do nothing. Um, <laughs> Picture. Do you remember you seen this picture a few months ago? <laughs> this was after I think this was the G20 summit in Italy, and this was, this picture tells such a great story because uh, this was everyone came together, and it appeared that through through an effort, a triumph of the will, if you will, and uh, and through hard work and cooperation behind doors dealings, that they saved the world from collapse. And this picture is actually a great picture because you've got. The U.S. President, Barack Obama, giving us a thumbs up. The Italian President, who habitually says that Obama has a tan, he always says that. <laughs> he's saying, uh, I don't know what he's doing, but he's, he's getting in on the picture. Uh, this is Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, who says, yes, we have a lot of energy, everything's fine with us. And here you have the poor uh, Chinese President, Hu Jintao, thinking, I have to be a creditor to these guys. <laughs> 
I thought, this is great. So two, you know, capital producers are, are from countries where they're running enormous public se sector deficits, and they're relying on the goodwill of the savers of the world, who are in developing countries and really shouldn't, can't afford to be profitable with their money. So I thought, maybe we had better figure out whether it's time to, to do something. But doing nothing probably isn't an option. Uh, but just in case you wonder, uh, you know, we get this all the time. It couldn't happen again. That was as bad as it was going to get. It's a one, one in 500 year event. Uh, the banking system is fixed. We've replaced all the capital with safe and sound government bonds. The banks are prudent in their lending. Deposits are safe. Not, you don't have anything to worry about. I simply just don't believe that's the case, but I'm going to try and prove to you why I think that's not the case. So if I were going to make a claim today, uh, and this is the claim I'm going to make and I'll try to prove, is that there is a super cycle, uh, there's more than one super cycle. Here in Australia we hear all the time about the commodity super cycle being driven by uh, the industrialization of India and China, rising per capita incomes. And I think that's true. Uh, it's not going to be uh, a straight up line, but I think that's true. But I think there's a larger cycle here that's saying it's the super cycle of paper money that began really when the world went off the gold standard and went into World War I. And since then, I think you, you can view economic history in the world as a series of credit-fueled cycles. And it's my view that we've reached the super cycle, and that, that paper money itself, fiat money itself, has reached its apex. And we have, and this financial system, this monetary system, has exhausted its possibilities, and the debt is starting to expose that. So my contention is that the, uh, the policy response has, has been exactly wrong. It's been to uh, subsidize the firms that made the biggest mistakes and not let them go out of business. The bigger point is it's been to transfer those liabilities from the private sector to the public sector. Now it's the public sector's problem. But if we've saved the investment banks, now we've put nation states themselves at risk with these liabilities. Uh, it's wrong because it won't work. It's wrong because it's not the right thing to do. And I mean that in an ethical and moral way, but it's going to happen anyway. So this was a point that uh, Neil Ferguson and I think Kenneth Rogoff made recently. They said, uh, the second stage of this crisis will not be like the first stage. But what governments did succeed in doing is saving a certain, the financial sector from uh, insolvency. But they've imported those problems onto their own balance sheet. So the next phase of this crisis is a crisis in sovereign debt. So a big point in my presentation today is to show that whether you look at Europe, Japan, the United States, or even China, this risk is very real in all of the major economies and all of the major currencies that people hold as reserves. So obviously this bodes very well for gold, but uh, it's a very serious crisis. And it has more than just economic dimensions. It has political dimensions, and it has possibly military dimensions. But ultimately, uh, I think that the fiscal welfare state model is breaking. And it's breaking because the, the monetary premise upon which it was founded was a fraudulent premise. And what's going to emerge from it is a new monetary order. We don't know what it will look like, and there are other people here who have a lot more intelligent things to say about that than I do. But I think my conclusion from thinking about it is that gold will play a role, and a very important role, for, for obvious reasons. And again, other people know this uh, and have said it and can write about it better than I do, but I just thought it was worth pointing out because writing about gold to uh, investors who've never heard of it, we always get mail from people and they say, but what is gold? It's an inert metal, it doesn't have interest, it has no intrinsic qualities that make it fit as a medium of exchange or store of value. But I like to tell them, uh, and it's not my phrase, I probably read it somewhere, but I think gold is a kind of common law money. 
that its physical properties do make it uniquely suited as a medium of exchange and a store of value. That's why people used it for thousands of years. And that way, it's not just a tradition, as common law is, it's a, tra a tradition that people uh, observe because it worked. And it was based on uh, some fundamental values about how transactions ought to be conducted honestly, about keeping government deficits in check. And th these have enormous benefits, as other people here know. So I'm not going to go into them. The last point I would make on it, though, is uh, the one point that people forget is that when you have a sound money system, what it really does is it frees up enterprise. And uh, with the Austrian economists, who I'm a big fan of, the hero of the Austrian uh, economists, uh, at least as I understand them, according to Joseph Schumpeter, is not the capitalist or the banker. It's the entrepreneur. It's the person who takes resources, turns it into a business, creates value, creates jobs, creates incomes, and creates new products. So people who claim that the gold standard is exactly what Keynes said it was, a barbarous relic that limits growth and is, is an anachronism not suited for the modern world, I think they're really missing out on a big part of the story about what the world would look like if we had sound money and people were free to uh, pursue enterprise, which benefited everyone. Now that might be idealistic, I'm sure we're going to talk about that over the next few days, but I wanted to mention that. Contrast that with this. <laughs> now, it's, it's a bit of a crude cartoon, and it's not mine. There's a blogger named, um, well, he's anonymous. His name is Finbar Taggart, and the blog is called uh, uh, Fintag, if you get a chance. He claims that he's a hedge fund manager in London. He's a very contrarian hedge fund manager. And he writes these, uh, he, he's a great blogger, and he, um, he also occasionally draws cartoons. But he's been posting this picture of Ben Bernanke for the last two years. And I love the picture because it, it undermines the credibility and authority that the monetary authorities seek to have when they come out and wear fancy suits and make pronouncements about how they're saving the economy and controlling things. And what they're really doing is they're, they're drug dealers. They're monetary <laughs> drug dealers. They're giving out credit to the financial sector. They're giving out credit to bail out the banks which make up the Federal Reserve. And it's, it's really tawdry. And it's really unseemly. And I, I use this headline, but it's a bit of an ironic headline because in the direct mail business in the States, there used to be a guy named Matthew Lesko. You might have seen him on TV. He wears a suit with question marks. Uh, and he gets on the TV in these infomercials. And he publishes a book about uh, government grants that you can apply for and get. So, you know, you can apply for a grant to start your own hair washing business or your dog walking business. It's, and he, he calls it free money to change your life. Uh, and many people find this, it sounds like a great idea, free money from the government. But obviously, it's not free. The money isn't free at all. In fact, the more the government prints, the more the government gives away, the worse it does, the more wealth it destroys. And I think we should be honest, uh, those of us who believe this anyway, of saying that's what's going on. That we're not just having a policy dispute here, we're having a dispute about whether this institution, this method of managing money, is good for our economy and good for our society. And obviously, I don't think it is. So what am I going to talk about? Uh, well, I'll talk about the first two events in some detail and then less detail about the last three because I don't want to uh, talk for an hour. But I, I uh, isolated five events that I thought, uh, and they're not exclusively monetary events, but um, I thought we should talk about them. The first one goes to the idea of whether or not the credit crisis is over. And I think well, one example that it might not be over is that the balance sheet of US banks and probably European banks has definitely changed in the last year, but it's now filled with government bonds. And if there is a sovereign debt crisis, then the bank collateral that used to be subprime mortgages and CDOs and got wiped out 
and initiated this whole process of deleveraging, well, that could be at risk again. The government said, well, we'll fix that problem by recapitalizing the banks with bonds. I think they may have planted a time bomb on the bank balance sheets that uh, could go off sooner than we expect. But the real issue in the, in the biggest bubble right now is in U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, and in some ways, this is the critical issue for gold and for all other currencies. So we'll look at that. Um, Paul Krugman and a lot of other economists, are, including economists here in Australia, are telling us that the public sector will have to step in, not just this year, not just next year, but, but for the, as long as it takes to prevent a lost decade in the Western economies where deflation uh, is this vicious cycle. And the government's going to have to run deficits, and not only will they have to do it, but it's a good thing. I think I'm going to try and show that that's stupid. Um, the EU and, and the Euro is also seen as a, a potential alternative to the dollar. I think if the closer we look at it, particularly one aspect of it, we'll find that it's not on much firmer ground than the US dollar. Uh, and finally, uh, one of the most perplexing questions, I think, in the currency world is what is China going to do with its $2 trillion in reserves, and when is it going to allow its currency to appreciate? Um, we're assuming that the Chinese authorities have a plan in uh, that the plan will preserve the value of their treasuries, but somehow miraculously get them into another asset. I'm not sure that's the case, but it's worth talking about. So the first issue is, uh, where is the next big crisis, or is there going to be a next big crisis? And I, I just wanted to mention this, because I saw this story last week, and it was a fantastic story. I can't remember the guys who published it. I, I mentioned them in the Daily Record. But this chart shows the month-of-month uh, -month increase in securities uh, held by banks, treasury securities and agency securities. So these are US banks who've been taking advantage of low interest rates, basically risk-free money from the Fed, and loading up on treasury bonds. And uh, what you can see is that the percentage increase uh, over the month is massive. They're buying a lot of treasury bonds on their balance sheet because it's the safest trade in the market right now. There's not a lot of leverage in it, but if the Fed's gonna give them free money, they've decided to load up on it. So uh, what you can see here is that this is their total holdings. And um, if you do this chart logarithmically, it's slightly less, less uh, dramatic, but, but not much uh, less dramatic. And what it shows is that uh, prior to the Fed announcing that it was going to support the bond market last year, uh, banks had sort of dialed back their accumulation of bonds. They were uh, anticipating inflation. But I think what's happened since then is that uh, Everyone's gotten on the Fed side of the trade and said, if the Fed's going to support the bond market, why, why not get in? And so they've increased their holdings of bonds. Now, this is, I've mentioned a couple of perplexing questions, and this is probably one of the, one of the more perplexing questions. And uh, David Evans has written about this, and I know other people will have ideas, but everyone's familiar with the growth in uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, adjusted monetary base from the Federal Reserve. Everyone knows that the Fed has created a, a huge amount of money. What no one can figure out is why that money hasn't resulted in a growth in the money supply and inflation in consumer prices. Now, uh, without getting too arcane, I think there are two, two uh, answers to it. The first is that banks aren't lending that money. Banks are holding it on reserve at the Fed, or they're just hanging back because they're scared to that. And the second is that uh, I think inflation shows up in two places. Um, it shows up in asset prices and consumer prices. Uh, it's not showing up in wages because there's no employment growth in the US economy and there's very little employment growth in the destroyed economy. So when the Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve say there's no inflation problem, 
what they mean is that uh, wages aren't rising because there's global, uh, you know, global pressure on wages and uh, consumer prices aren't rising, inflation's not a problem. But that's not true. All the returns from wealth in the economy are going to the people who own financial assets. And so since March, in property, and in bonds, and in the share market, you've seen a re-inflation of the bubble. So for the Fed or anybody to claim that there isn't inflation, uh, they're being a bit disingenuous. They're saying because there's no consumer price inflation, everything is fine. Um, now, in the context of gold, people say, well, geez, I don't know. Is there more uh, deflation coming up? Are assets going to be written down? Are banks have collateral problems? Are we going to have a repeat of what happened last year? Uh, well, I think in some ways, although it's a, it's a wordy debate and, and we could spend a lot of time on it, uh, I think David Einhorn, who's the um, uh, hedge fund manager of Greenlight uh, Hedge Fund in, in New York, he was at the Value Investors Conference last week and uh, he said that right there, that gold does well when monetary and fiscal policies are poor and poor when they are sensible. So if you're bearish on gold, then you're bullish on sensibility from the government policymakers. <laughs> That's the trade that you want to make. You are speculative. But uh, Jim Grant and Grant's Interest Rate Observer made it also, I think, a good point that puts this conversation in context without resolving what is a very difficult issue. And he said the gold is a speculation, but uh, it's a speculation on uncertainty. That we're pretty certain that the governments are going to either devalue the currency or debase it in some way. So uh, whether or not we're going to see more inflation or deflation or in what order certainly makes a lot of, uh, uh, has an impact on the immediate future of the gold price. But I think in the long term, uh, either one is bullish for gold. And, uh, but my original point here was uh, gold, that's how gold fits in this discussion. But if we have uh, this impending or possible problem you know, with banks having tons of US treasuries on their balance sheet, and those treasuries being vulnerable. Uh, I'm not the only one who says this. Uh, this was, uh, what's his name, John Paulson, the hedge fund manager who made a boatload of money. This is the guy who uh, helped him make that money. He said the best trade right now in the world is, is short US treasuries. Now, if I would make one point as a somewhat of a contrarian investor, I'd say you've got a lot of high profile hedge fund managers who are now long gold and saying so in public, and virtually everyone in the world is short US treasuries. So it wouldn't surprise me to see the exact opposite happen in the short term, because you just can't have that much consensus without everyone being wrong. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, in the I think we're okay. So what is the problem? Is there really a, a debt problem in the US, and is there really a treasury bubble? Well, to start with the big picture, you can see that, yes, there is a debt problem. This chart, I think, uh, this was from Rolf Winkler, another blogger at uh, Reuters, and all he's showing is that it's not just public debt, it's private debt, it's, uh, it's corporate debt. That really for the last 30 years, uh, America especially, but Australia to, to, to an equal degree, has loaded up on debt uh, with the belief, as Warren Buffett has said, that it's okay as long as you can generate income from your assets and pay the interest and grow out of it, that you can grow the economy. But I think the point I'm making today is that the debt levels have grown too much, so we're not going to grow out of it. They've become too onerous for the economy. Uh, to service. So you've seen this chart. Uh, this is the U.S. deficit last year. Uh, it's getting bad. This is before they pass a health care plan. Uh, this is before they get in another war. It's already bad. Uh, some, some people may have seen this last week, but it, it was a provocative article. But uh, this was a, a economist, I can't remember his name. I think it was a, a Swedish economist. But 
he was studying hyperinflations in the 20th century, uh, and particularly, I think, 12 of them in the last 20 years. And his conclusion was that when 40% uh, of current government spending was deficit spending, that's when you saw serious cases of hyperinflation uh, in other economies. So this made it all over the web last week because people were saying, well, geez, 40% of the U.S. Uh, deficit, or the U.S. budget is now deficit spending. They're borrowing 40% of the money just to meet the budget. So under this man's definition, hyperinflation is imminent. I think the, uh, I don't think that's the case because for now, the U.S. government remains the only government in the world that uh, can print the money in which it borrows. And this is, a, I think this is a point that came up in Australian politics last week. I saw an exchange between Barnaby Joyce and Ken Henry, where uh, Senator Joyce asked the treasurer if it was possible that uh, the United States government could, could be insulted, that its debt would break its back. Technically speaking, I don't think it is. As long as the U.S. government can print its own money, can print as much money as it would like, and eventually that will cause people to repudiate its currency and its credits. But I think, technically speaking, it's, it's unlikely that the U.S. would uh, become insolvent. But the picture is not pretty. And you can see the summary. I, I, I think the last three numbers are the important numbers here. That uh, the amount of treasuries in supply are growing because the deficit continues to grow. And in the last 10 years, I think, uh, foreigners have gone from only 20% of U.S. debt to 50% to, uh, to of the publicly held debt. Half the U.S. debt is owned by the U.S. government. The other half, $5.7 trillion, is publicly traded. But the, aside from spending $450 billion a year just paying interest on, on debt, $450 billion, which doesn't do anything productive for the economy, doesn't build any bridge, bridges, roads, doesn't pay for any wars, any health care, anything at all, uh, the scary thing is this chart, which I know it's kind of a geeky thing, but this has got to be my single favorite, most favorite chart in the world. And uh, it only gets updated once a year, uh, and I go look for it every year. And it's ironically published by, uh, it used to be called the General Accounting Office in the United States. Now it's called the General Accountability Office, because I think they've thrown the accounting out the window all the time. no idea what's going on. But what this shows, uh, just in, in the layman's terms, is the maturity schedule of U.S. debt. So you've got $5.7 trillion held by the uh, uh, investors. So every year, the United States government has to roll over $3.4 trillion, just, just roll it over. That doesn't include new debt that's being issued or new debt that they may have to issue to pay for uh, uh, whatever pro, uh, President Obama wants to do. That's an enormous amount of money, even by today's standards, uh, in the capital markets, where people who have savings have a lot of choices. Do they want to invest in U.S. treasuries? Do they want to invest in their own economy? Do they want to buy Australian bonds? Do they want to buy Brazilian bonds? So the Fed has a massive problem here, and the U.S. government has a massive problem. Because what's happened is the maturity schedule of U.S. debt has shifted radically towards short-term short debt, which in, in a way it's a little like the Australian homeowners market. It's made the debt extremely interest rate sensitive because a very small rise in interest rates means a huge increase in borrowing costs for the U.S. government. And so anybody who owns these U.S. bonds is at risk that if there is, for some reason, a spike in U.S. bond yields, that's going to be a disaster for people who own Treasury bonds. And I don't think that many people are aware of how much debt is short-term in the U.S. And that's all the creditors will buy now. They're not buying as many 30-year bonds. Who would loan money to the United States government for 30 years at 4%? 
Who would loan the United States government money 30 years at 12%? Would anyone do that in here? There might be a few people. If it wasn't your money. You <laughs> this is just the last point I'm making. Uh, this chart is actually a, a little disingenuous, but I didn't go back and try and, and put it in context because the GAO published this chart, which shows, if you can't quite read it, the average interest rate on U.S. debt since 19... Uh, is that 83? Yeah, 1983, right after interest rates started coming down, right? They left out the period where interest, where Paul Volcker put up interest rates to bring inflation down. So they're saying it's not a problem because the average interest rate on the debt isn't bad. And people will still want to buy this debt. I think that day you know, when people don't want to buy it uh, is coming. And this was one insight from the GAO. They are, you know, they were fairly straightforward. They're not making any judgments, they don't have a political point of view, their job is just to assess the situation. But this was a very clear explanation of what's going on, I think unintentionally. They said the level of debt held by the public reflects how much of the nation's wealth has been absorbed by the federal government to finance prior federal spending in excess of federal revenues. It best represents the cumulative effect of past federal borrowing on today's economy. Which is a polite way of saying that the country has been living way above its means for 20 years and that there's a cost to that. Uh, and that if it wants to continue to borrow, it's going to come at the expense of uh, future Americans who have to pay off that debt. And I think, uh, you know, that I'm not gonna get up on my soapbox about it, but I think this is one thing that does infuriate me, that this is not just a question. And it's a bit the same here in Australia, although the numbers are smaller. What you're saying essentially is that our current standard of living is more important than the future standard of living. So present prosperity, takes priority over whatever they have to deal with in the future. So we'll leave that problem for them to deal with instead of holding people accountable for the mistakes they made. Which if they did, would wash out of the system much more quickly and would be fine, but that's not what's happening. So to conclude this part of the discussion, I think there is a bubble in US Treasury bonds. I don't know what's going to spark it. One point we're pointing out is that uh, in, the, in the UK, uh, I think earlier this month, the Financial Services Authority passed a new regulation which requires British banks to own liquid bonds. Now they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, evaluate the credit quality of the bonds, but they said in order to make sure that another crisis doesn't happen, a certain percentage of your bond holdings must be liquid so that you can sell them quickly so that uh, you can turn them into cash if you need to to, to to build your equity up. But what it essentially means, if you read between the lines, at least in my, uh, my interpretation, is that it will probably mean compulsory or mandatory bank buying of government bonds. Because the government bonds are the only ones that are continued uh, to be rated AAA. So the government's saying, you can't own emerging market debt, you can't own junk bonds or high risk debt, you have to own our debt. So it's a backdoor way of, of making the banks eat all the new debt being issued by the governments in the form of quantitative easing. So if there's compulsory, uh, if this rule takes effect in the UK, I wouldn't be surprised to see it in the US where the government, like, like maybe the, the, they've done in the States, is telling corporations what they have to put on their balance sheet. So the bond bubble, my point is the bond bubble could go on longer than anyone thinks because of this. The government could force the banks to eat up this debt. So I'm not going to say that it's going to happen this week or this month, but in the context of what the market thinks of the growing U.S. deficits, it's not, it's not a mystery what the market thinks of U.S. deficits. I would put the uh, gold rise over the last 10 years uh, and put it side by side with that line of thinking. But beware of a compulsory economy.
Uh, now, let's take the Paul Grubin effect and say that none of that matters. That we face, right now, in the Western world, we face a choice. And our choice is 10 years of debt deflation where households and corporations work down their debt and the economy doesn't grow, employment doesn't grow, wages don't grow, and it's a deflationary, uh, sort of a long, soft, what did my boss call it, a slow motion depression. Well, that's not acceptable. That is not acceptable to politicians, and it's not acceptable to Paul Krugman, who is, as you know, a Nobel Prize winning economist. So Krugman is telling us that we must run deficits, and deficits are good. And the example everyone uses is we've got to avoid what Japan's doing. But what I want to show, I think, is that Japan's policy of running a large public sector deficit simply hasn't worked. Why would we do something that didn't work? Uh, and I, I put these two pictures up because I find Japan fascinating. It's a fascinating place with, where you see uh, the contrast with modern technology and modern culture and, and an ancient culture and a real demographic crisis. And the real demographic crisis is that this robot on the left, I think his name is Robin. He just came out a few weeks ago. Um, he can actually jump off the ground, like three inches off the ground. But it can sort of do a little run up and it jumps. Uh, and this other one is a robot that, that, that a developer in Japan was trying to uh, create so it could take care of the elderly when, they, when no one else was there to take care of them. Which illustrates in a way the huge demographic barrel Japan is staring down, uh, which its government doesn't seem to think is going to affect its ability to run deficits. So what they say is, go big, run Japanese-style deficits. And the reason is, people say, what is the limit What's the limit of a debt-to-GDP ratio? How much public debt can we take on before the economy is in trouble? Is it the amount of interest as a percentage of the, of the budget, or is it a percentage of GDP? Well, people trot this number out and they say, they're, Japan's running a public sector deficit, 180% of GDP. We've been doing it for 10 years. It doesn't work, but the economy hasn't collapsed. So there's plenty of room. In the US right now, uh, the deficit as a percentage of uh, GDP is, uh, I think, about 98%. The debt as a percentage of GDP is about 98%. So they could double it, and there'd be no problem. But if, if you look at the, the, the case for them and the case against them, I don't think that's true. So what I did is I just kind of scratched this out on my notepad and thought, all right, what's the case for them and what's the case against them? <coughs> so the case for them is that we have to do it. Because doing nothing is not acceptable. We can't win votes that way. What are we supposed to do about the economy collapse? They assume that's what would happen, but they say we can't do nothing. Uh, and of course, spending other people's money is fun, especially when you get to spend it uh, to your friends or political, politically connected contractors or whatever. I mean, it's not be coy about what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. But they don't work. And that's the negative side of this, which I think we should consider, is that uh, right now, uh, the Japanese are facing larger interest payments. So the reason I mention this with the US and Japan is it's just dead money. It's money that either goes to foreign creditors or it doesn't go to stimulate your economy at all. And uh, as your debt grows, you have to pay interest on that. And then you, sometimes you have to borrow just to pay the interest. It's a terrible cycle to get into, and we ought to avoid it if we can. Uh, as uh, as uh, Niall Ferguson mentioned, I think, in his Bloomberg article mentioned this week, it's going to provoke, in some economies, a sovereign debt crisis, where there will not be people who can buy the debt, who will buy the debt at certain interest rates. So what you have is you have a government that's made a complex series of promises to its people, and it can't afford them anymore. And this is true everywhere in the Western world. 
We're continuing to make promises we can't afford, thinking somebody else is going to pay for it. And the whole monetary system is based on the idea that you can get something for nothing, or you can run a perpetual debt and pass that on. It's true in Japan, it's true in Europe, it's true in the United States. Uh, and the big mistake the Japanese are making is there was a great article uh, that showed that the government has launched a brand new campaign, uh, a brand new campaign to get people to buy the debt. So they have actors from famous movies who are getting on television and saying it's a patriotic duty to buy the debt. It's almost like they're war bonds. <laughs> and they're putting ads in the back of uh, taxis that say uh, it's better than bank savings. You know, you should do this with your money. What they're assuming is that the baby boomers who have pension money are going to take that pension money and put it straight into government bonds and finance these deficits. But in Japan, as in the United States in a few years, I think what will happen is the high net worth baby boomers who do have money, who do have liquid assets, will begin consuming those assets to pay for their retirement. So there's less money available to the public sector. The savings that normally would be available to finance deficits will be consumed because it's just that stage in life people are at. Japan is the guinea pig for that, and we'll see how it goes. I'll make the last two points quickly because I'm kind of paddling on. Uh, people say that Europe, uh, the euro is probably the, <coughs> the strongest currency in the world, maybe the yen. But I had a friend, uh, Steve Trigger, who said, viewing the currencies, uh, the euro, yen, and dollar, is a little bit like uh, viewing a beauty pageant. And they're all ugly. Uh, so what's going for is the least ugly currency. A lot of people say, well, the euro is the least ugly currency because, you know, because it just is. Um, but this is an interesting point on the euro, which I think we should consider. This happened earlier this year, so I don't have current figures. But what you're starting to see in the eurozone is a, a spread in the interest rates at which it, uh, separate economies can borrow. So Greece, Italy, Spain, and Portugal are having to pay higher interest rates to borrow than their counterparts in Germany, the UK, and France. Now, you wouldn't normally have a big spread in interest rates when everyone's using the same currency. But this exposes the inherent weakness of the European Central Bank and the idea of the euro as a currency. They got all the benefits of the currency in terms of transport and trade, but they got all the weaknesses too. And the big weakness is that you have different economies with different requirements for credit and no ability to adjust interest rates. And I guarantee you that at some point, there's going to be a government in Italy, Portugal, Ireland, or Spain that in order to, to inflate away the debt, to bail out the housing market, to save a domestic constituency, is going to demand the ability to create money, which it can't do right now, uh, willy-nilly. So I think this is, uh, Europe has done the same thing. They've transferred private sector liabilities under the public balance sheet. And demographically, they have the same problem as Japan. They have an aging population who's making a lot of demands on the public, which the public can't pay for. And here's the problem, who's going to bail out the state? There's one thing for the states to bail out the banks. Who's going to bail out the governments? There's no one there to do it. So that's why the sovereign debt crisis will reward gold. I don't really know what to say about China because I, I don't know how it's going to end. And uh, that's why it's, it's an ongoing story. I just want to uh, show you, obviously everyone knows they have $2 trillion. Most of it is in short term debt. So they're not owning 30-year bonds, only three, five, and 10-year bonds. So they can just gradually reduce their holdings, and that puts the US in a difficult spot. Uh, but I was in China in 2004 as part of my trip, and there's a long history of owning gold that predates the Communist Party. Even though the Communist Party is now encouraging people to own gold, uh, there's a long tradition of owning gold in both China and India. And of course, what we know is that the Chinese are now the world's largest gold producer. It won't be long before they're the world's largest gold <coughs> consumer whether that's the government or whether that is the people. And this, this was a, two pictures I took while I was there. I bought this $5 watch of Mao. Of course, it, it broke immediately. Uh, <laughs> it's the only watch that's never right. It's not even right twice a day. But I, I, 
I thought it was great that in China, I mean, I have some real doubts about how big of a free market there is in China, but I, what I did think was great was that communist ideology had been reduced to a $5 trinket. I thought that was a real, real accomplishment for free markets. And at the same time, I went to see the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which was not yet up and running. It was just getting started. And of course, now there's a lot more activity. So no one knows. When will the Chinese make their move, sell their US debt? They can't do it subtly, because they have a lot to lose if the US devalues or if they end up selling before anyone else. So I think their policy will continue to be what it is, is gradual, unless, unless you know, the Chinese monetary authorities are no more competent than US monetary authorities. We have an assumption that there's a plan and there's an exit strategy. But I don't know why we should believe that. If they've adopted the same economic model and the same monetary model, they have the same vulnerabilities. But I think as an investor, look what they're doing. They're building a position in gold. They're building equity in Australian resource companies. Uh, and they're, they're building an economy that's based on production, based on net tangible assets, and that has real monetary reserves, not just a pile of liabilities that future taxpayers are going to have to pay. So I think as gold investors, even if we don't know how that's going to end, generally fairly bullish. Uh, so, is it over? No. What have we learned? Absolutely nothing. We're making the same mistake all over and we're no closer to resolution. Uh, I think it will strike uh, in uh, the bank collateral, which is now mostly U.S. Treasury bonds and residential real estate. I don't know when and how it will end, but I don't think it will fare well for any of the paper currencies. Gold, because of the things I talked about and because of the things most of you know, represents uh, uh, one place to find refuge from <coughs> from these governments. And what should you do? Well, have a good conversation about it over the next few days, talk about some gold stocks, and probably uh, do what you keep doing and build your position in gold. And, and I think I'm done, but thank you very much for your time. I think we'll um, I'd like to, to, uh, to, to carry straight on to our next presentation and ask David Evans to um, uh, come up to, uh, to talk to us. David uh, is uh, well, he's a man of um, wears many hats and he's the only person I know whose uh, business card says rocket scientist on it and it's actually true. <laughs> David today is going to be talking to us about his ideas on how carbon credits are simply a new form of fiat money. Goldsmiths kept base money in gold 
in their belonging, they gave out receipts to people, and people traded the receipts because they were a lot more convenient than gold. Hence, paper money was born. Today we do the same thing, only the situation is a little bit fuzzy now. The base money is in fact cash and bank reserves, and the receipts for, bank, for, for that are in fact the bank money we use. You just lumble them all, just jumble them all together and call them money. And the concept of fractional reserve banking is when Goldsmiths made an enormous financial discovery. This is what changed our financial world. They discovered that you should issue more receipts than you had gold. So you only need to give back a fraction of base money to gold, and you can issue a lot more receipts. So let's talk about the manufacture of money. If you ask people how, where money comes from and how it's made, almost no one knows. Try it, ask people. You get all sorts of money. The truth is that there's actually two ways of doing it. First of all, to make base money, you can literally use a printing machine. That's what the central bank or the reserve, uh, sorry, the, the government does. The second way that they can create base money is you simply write a number into a new account at the central bank. Right? Just central bank, when it wants to buy some treasury bonds, it just says, all right, we'll put a new account here for the treasury. You can spend it as you like and just put a number in it. It's as simple as that. When, by the way, the term monetization is used for that because when the central bank buys things, it does things by putting new numbers in their account for someone through a central bank. And that, that's called monetization. So when the central bank starts going around buying things and thereby creating new money, it's called monetization. Keep, up, keep your eyes, oh, sorry, ears open for that word. You're going to be hearing a lot of it the next few years. Bank money is a little different. Remember, this is like the old gold from issuing more receipts and they had gold. The way that banks create money private banks, that's to say anything that's not a, not a central bank, some of them are public, all the private banks, nearly all of them are. All they do is they put a number into a bank account at the bank. When you get a mortgage, all the bank does is create a bank account for you, it says your mortgage account, and puts a number in there. Now, there are safeguards on it, and they have to just put some money in the reserve bank, and it's not just opening up an account and putting a number in it. They have to you know, satisfy some reserve requirements as well. But essentially, that's what, what happens. That's how money is manufactured today. Now, 90% or so of the money running around at the moment is bank money, only a small fraction is base money, because of the old fractional reserve system of 10 to 1. So just to wrap up this technical section on how money is created, Modern money is a dual creation of banks and government. You need them both playing a role. What's in it for the banks is that they, their bank money they create is national currency, backed by the national government. Prior to the creation of central banks, when goldsmiths or banks issued receipts for whatever they had, they were just backed by that goldsmith or that bank. It was a private currency. And that, that bank or that goldsmith could go bust. And we all had to worry about, oh, is this currency from that bank? I wonder if they're going to go bust. With the partnership of government and banks in our modern system, it's a national currency backed by the government. What's in it for the government is they can create and borrow as much money as they like. Now we introduce a new term, the paper aristocracy. The paper aristocracy started off as a bunch of tradesmen a few hundred years ago. They were the goldsmiths who looked after people's gold. And they made that momentous discovery that you can over-issue receipts. As a result, they grew from being mere tradesmen 
to being fairly rich and fairly politically powerful. Particularly when the nation states of Europe wanted to launch a war, they needed funds to persuade people to fight for them, to buy armaments, and they had to grovel these people to get that, those funds. Basically, whether by accident or design, or just centuries of thinking about it and evolution, the goldsmiths tripped across the key of the financial universe. They couldn't believe it. People will use the papers we issue as their money. Now, they weren't crude about it. They didn't just go, well, right, well, we'll just issue some receipts and buy lots of stuff for ourselves. It's much more cunning than that. They lend them to people, people pay them interest, and they buy stuff for themselves with the interest. Eventually, the paper aristocracy, well, it grew up from being the gold aristocracy, I suppose, to be the paper aristocracy. They managed, by degrees, to dispense with the underlying base currency of gold altogether. Gold is inconvenient for the paper aristocracy because you can't print it, you have to mine it. Mining gold is a very difficult sort of thing to do. The total amount of gold that humans have ever mined would fit in two Olympic-sized swimming pools. It's rare stuff, and it's damn hard to get new stuff. However, the current system, you can print paper whatever you like, and it disappeared by degrees from 1914 to 1971. Obviously, 1971 is the date for the argument, which totally disappeared. So I'd like to define the paper aristocracy as those people who know how to work the system of paper money. It's basically the banks and the banking and the government and the sort of banking class. Now, I don't mean bank employees. I mean the top few hundred people in Wall Street or here in this country who really understand this and know how it works. I also include people like the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds are one of the most successful banking uh, families of the 1800s. It is rumoured that by 1900, they owned half of all Western industry. I put it to you that that sort of wealth doesn't just dissipate, it tends to concentrate and, prop and propagate itself. I also point out to you that the paper aristocracy likes to be invisible. We don't know who they are. They use their wealth to protect their anonymity. They basically own or influence every media organisation in the world, so it's very difficult to get editors to take you seriously or to talk about these people. <coughs> there used to be an open question about whether the banks controlled government or government controlled banks until a year ago. When the global financial crisis hit, the banks asked for and got about $700 billion from the United States government the tarp, they could basically spend it as they liked. When a couple of US car companies asked for a $25 billion loan, they got knocked back and instead were nationalised. <coughs> no one knows where money comes from, hardly in our society today. It's not a secret that banking thrives behind a wall of misdirection and confusion. It's complex. It makes your head spin. It took me years to figure out how this works, and I'm a rocket scientist. <laughs> I think if you become a, a bank manager and you move up the circles, I mean, you gradually understand it and soak it in. But for an outsider trying to crack the system, it's not easy. In the sense that banking isn't quite what it, or money isn't quite what it's represented to be, banking is a con. It's just a little bit too complicated for the average person to grasp. And most of the time, the system kind of works. And so people don't care about it. Most people who are interested in gold and the money system have had that experience. 
trying to explain to other people that gold might be an interesting thing and that money isn't always cracked up to be and that the medium exchange is created by banks and so on. People are interested. They will be when it starts hurting. Finally, I'd just like to point out to you that some folks have the power to manufacture money out of thin air, paper aristocracy. And miraculously, they don't work particularly hard and they have more stuff than the rest of us. They're definitely rent seekers. If you're in an uncharitable mood, you call them parasites. I think if everyone really understood how banking worked, how money was manufactured, it'd be outlawed in an instant. Barry, could you in fact, it used to be. For centuries, what is now modern-day banking practice was literally outlawed. The European states uh, eventually gave in under the pressure of needing war. Sweden was first in about 1670. Britain followed in 1694 with the creation of the British Central Bank. Basically, the monarchs needed money desperately, and they did a deal with the goldsmiths. That's how it began at a national level. Now I want to talk about the current financial bubble, and this ties in neatly with Dan's talk. I've only got one graph in this talk, and Dan's already shown part of it. But mine's got colour. <laughs> Bubbles are due to excess money. Now, this recession is different from all the ones before, uh, sorry, we've had between now and 1929. What happened in 1929 and what's happening now is different because and all those other little recessions we've had, as soon as uh, you've got excess inventory and excess money supply building up, that is to say, more money being created than the words goods and services to pay for them, that's what buy with Central banks would tap on the brakes, like raise interest rates, and slow the rate of money creation down again. In 1929, what's happening now, we didn't do that. Central banks are just keeping interest rates low, regardless, until something busts. Right? We're pretty close to the bust now, we're not there yet. We had a pretty big wake-up call uh, last year, I think, the global financial crisis. At the moment, we're simply running out of borrowing capacity. There just isn't much more income left in the world which to service debt, and there's not much more collateral left. Virtually every bit of collateral in the world has got a loan on it, and most people and most organisations have a good deal of their income taken up paying interest. There are limits to how much debt you can take on. Now, you can graph this, the, the, uh, the progress of the bubble by looking at the amount of money, that is to say the amount of debt. Remember, money is debt in our current system. And the size of the economy is measured by the GDP. So the size of the financial bubble is basically the ratio of debt to GDP. It's one of the most important numbers in the financial world, <coughs> and we can use it to graph the financial story of our times. Just the arrow key. You press the arrow key, the down the arrow key. In other words, I small side. I'll go the arrow key. All right. This is my graph. See, Dan's got more colours than yours. Much nicer. <laughs> Colour inflation. <laughs> okay, 1950 up to about the end of 2008. These are the absolute amounts of money. 
This is, this, this is the US graph. The situation in Australia is similar. The ratio is somewhat higher last time I looked. This is broadly true of all the Western countries, but we'll concentrate on the US. There's the debt. Sorry, there's, there's the GDP, there's the debt. And this line here is the ratio of them. It's that ratio that's probably the more important thing in terms of understanding this. Now, from 1950 through to about 1970 or so, 1980, the ratio is running along at a fairly typical level of about 150%. That is to say, the total amount of debt in society was about one and a half times the yearly GDP. In 1971, we, we, we lost all connection with gold in our currency. We became a purely fiat currency. There was some confusion in the 1970s. It was ended by Volcker in the late 1970s by charging very high interest rates, and the economy settled down in a monetary sense to a fresh start in about 1980 or 82. That's when the bubble started. Interest rates were kept a little low. The amount of money that was borrowed, particularly under the voodoo economics of a man called Ronald Reagan, grew quite quickly. Western economies set a good time, a good time was had by all the lots of borrowed money. In 1929, according to the figures I had, the uh, the debt to GDP ratio peaked at 235%. I noticed on Dan's chart it was a bit high, it was almost 300%. As I understand it, it was 235%. And we reached that in about 1987. We had a crash in 1987 as well. However, we didn't react, or our central banks in 1987 didn't react like they did in 1929. In 1929, they let the money supply fall. In 1987, our central banks increased liquidity, poured lots of money into the system, and although there was a market crash, general economy did all right. However, the rate of money creation slowed. The Greeks start the bubble around about here. They started loosening money creation rules. Bank safeguards were slackened a lot. They introduced what's called the Basel I Accords in the, in the banking system here, whereby the uh, system of putting bank reserves was more or less dispensed with. Prior to that, uh, banks had to lodge reserves with the central bank whenever they uh, lent money. Now that system is almost dispensed with. Um, it didn't really get the crash, sorry, didn't really get the bubble restarted. Clinton came to power in 1993. He instituted a different monetary policy. I'll go into some of the details of that in a moment. But Clinton's strategy got the bubble restarted. And it now went from, sorry, sorry, from, a, from a huge level, that's normal, that's huge, and now it went off towards obscene. And you had Greenspan giving his irrational exuberant speech, that didn't slow things down at all. You had a tech bubble crash, then the bubble spread to the housing sector, and you had the global financial crisis, and even that hasn't slowed it down. Global financial crisis started when the ratio was about 350%, it's now 375%. We're talking about the Clinton strategy. Now, I'm calling it the Clinton strategy because it happened under President Clinton. But I'm not sure that Clinton personally knew what was going on. It was certainly run by his advisors like Greenspan and Rubin and Summers. And I might also add that the US presidents have all followed the same, uh, same uh, strategies. When uh, George Bush came to power, he gave one speech that indicated he thought that uh, Clinton's strategy was rubbish and wanted to change monetary weight and done monetarily. And after that, he backed down and never heard about it again. Whether that's influence of the paper aristocracy or not, I don't know. 
When Obama came to power, he reappointed Clinton's crew and the, 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 the policy is exactly the same. So this isn't a party political thing. This merely started under Clinton. Maybe he was just the guy who happened to be in political control at the time. Oh, sorry, Clinton's problem. But every time he proposed a, uh, a spending initiative that was constrained by the, long, by the bond market, as soon as he suggested anything, so, sorry, said anything that suggested the government was going to increase its, um, its spending, long-term interest rates would spike up on the bond market. So-called bond market vigilantes would say, ah, government spending is about to go up, so they'd raise interest rates. Raising interest rates in the US hurts mortgage owners, hurts businesses, it's bad, ouch. So Clinton's problem was how to increase government spending without raising interest rates. And they came up with a solution. But it involved being surreptitious. First thing, obviously, was to lower long-term interest rates. And the solution to this was use derivatives on the long-term bond market as 5, 10, and 30-year bonds. And what they did was they created a, a huge pile of derivatives. And the der derivatives were moved around and bought and sold in such a way by government agents, mainly the big banks like JP Morgan. JP Morgan's the main bank in this regard. To do two things. First of all, to put a steady bias downward on the interest rate in the market. And in, in particular, to jerk the market around in irrational, counterintuitive ways so as to wipe out those bond vigilantes. If the market just moved irrationally and the government could afford it, or it's agents with JP Morgan and moved up and moved down, after a while, all those other guys went bust, they got demoralized and they left the market. The uh, Bank for International Settlements says that there are currently around about $600 trillion worth of derivatives floating around. The vast majority of those are interest rate derivatives. That is to say, they directly bear on the, on the long bond market. And of those, JP Morgan alone has about 60 trillion. To put that in context, the world GDP is 50 trillion. So there's an immense amount of these things. And the interest rate, sorry, the derivative, the derivatives on interest rate is a complex. It has to keep on expanding so as to keep that long term interest rates below what it would be under normal market conditions. Second thing the government did under Clinton was it changed the way the CPI is measured. A lot of statistical changes and what they did essentially was to uh, knock a couple of points off the CPI. Third thing they did was to muzzle the, the uh, canary in the gold. It's terrible. It lowered the gold price so as people weren't aware of the result that Clinton got was the longest, and deepest, and biggest bubble the world has ever seen. Free markets, as a result, are now broken. Now, what I'm talking about is in the US, but it spreads around the world very rapidly. The rest of the world has to copy US policy, because if you don't drift, your, uh, your currency rises and you can't export anymore. So, here in Australia, we've imported American CPI methodology, we've imported their interest rate strategy, I think our markets are freer, but they're tied into the American markets pretty closely in any case. Free markets, as you know, the reason we have them the benefit ones, they set prices very efficiently, and normally they're free of political influence. However, virtually every market nowadays is influenced by government policy. As I've just talked about the, the bond, sorry, the use of derivatives to uh, manipulate the long bond market. Short bonds or short-term interest rates are set directly by government fiat, by the current, by the central bank, that is set by edict. 
there are strong rumors that the US stock market is interfered with by the US government. Uh, the housing market has Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae that uh, backstop things and uh, lower, uh, lo sorry, lower the interest rates available to people. Gold and silver markets are widely believed to be manipulated. Uh, we have tariffs in the agriculture and um, quotas and some of the agricultural market. Maybe the oil market's not manipulated, but gee, they're about the only one that isn't. We got to the stage last year where people started saying, look, there aren't any markets anymore, there are just interventions. You can't judge where markets are going to go by the value of things, by the fundamentals. You have to take government policy into account on every market you're in nowadays. So what next? From that period of the Clinton strategy when the debt was growing very quickly, at several percent of GDP per year, the extra debt and money probably added about one or two percentage points of the GDP every year. That is to say, instead of having 2% GDP growth, we had 4% GDP growth, which felt great. And you do that for 13 years or so in a row, and you've probably added somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 15, 20, sorry, 15 to 25% of extra growth that you wouldn't have had by borrowing. You essentially borrowed from the future. Just like an individual. However, as the debt to GDP ratio returns to its normal level of 150%, it all has to be given back. So we're going to have to give back 15 to 25% of our GDP. A depression is normally considered 10%, so that's a double depression. And as Dan was saying, the choice for the politicians is do we do it fast or do we do it slow? The deflationists say, well, We'll sort of ignore government and assume they're a fairly small player. It's mainly up to a private market. So when the bubble stops growing and people stop borrowing money because asset prices aren't going up anymore, we'll encounter an almighty deflation. If this ratio works its way back down towards 150%. But as Dan points out, the politicians are not about to sit around and let that happen because that would be a huge political pain. So instead they'll try to print their way out of it. More likely to end up with a fairly inflationary situation, like the 1970s, only more intense. As governments try to work away people's debt through deflation, I'm sorry, inflation. But they'll try to keep it disguised as long as possible to pretend the inflation's not there. I want to talk a little bit about the United States and why it's a special country in regards to monetary policy. Not only is it the biggest country in the world and has about 25% of the world GDP, but history is made of a special battleground. For the, current, for, the, for the paper aristocracy. Paper aristocracy is essentially European in origin, came out of European goldsmiths. And places like Australia were sort of conquered, if you will, by the paper, paper aristocracy long ago because we just inherited the British system. Places like Thailand, one of other emerging non European countries, were easily taken over because they just inherited or copied Western systems, particularly European systems. The American Revolution wasn't about a tax on tea of 1 or 2%, it was actually about whose money to use. The lead up to the American Revolution was that there was an American script, American money, that was quite successful, but the European bankers were successfully persuading the European, uh, so English government to prevent Americans from using it and to use their money instead. The squabble was largely over whose money to use. And as a result of the American Revolution, the US was largely free of the influence of the paper aristocracy up till about 1913 or so. And in that time, you probably had what's the biggest, has been the biggest economic miracle 
world has ever seen in terms of lifting the largest number of people. Is living standard by the most. Uh, the US Constitution was designed specifically to prevent the takeover by the, uh, by the paper aristocracy, which largely failed a century or so ago. Another point I should mention is that the US dollar has become the biggest export of the US for the last few, last few decades. They print US dollars up, people send them real goods and services. The rest of the world has been sending the USA ships full of the real goods, and they only get sort of half the stuff. Sorry, ships come back half empty. The world sends the United States a lot of goods and services and receives little bits of paper in return. The Chinese, in particular, are aware of this problem. That's a privilege the United States has by virtue of having a world reserve currency, and it's coming to an end. It means that the US living standards will fall in the next few years. And obviously, that's going to have ramifications for uh, their policies. How much time have I got left? Oh, really? Sorry. If I could just um, add a quick explanation here. David was a little late in starting today for reasons that weren't his fault or mine. I was the timekeeper and I let Dan's speech go on a little bit too long. So if you'll just bear with us, I'd actually like to hear what David has to say. In theory, he's supposed to finish in two minutes, but uh, could you manage it in five, do you think, or six? Just go for five and I'll speed up. Okay, great. So to get to the real point of this talk, talk which is about missions trading and commission uh, sorry, commission credit, uh, sorry, commission permits. The plan is that the government manufactures these emission permits. They then get traded between big companies, particularly big financial companies. They compel the rest of us to buy them indirectly by virtue of buying goods and services. Ultimately, what it means is that the government will be extracting a tax from us. But the interesting feature, and I want to draw your attention to, is that big financial companies will take a cut along the way. So if you contrast the carbon tax with government simply taxes us, say taxes all coal, oil, and gas uh, consumption, versus the ETS, or the cap and trade systems that are being proposed, the difference is there's a trading system in one of them, whereby the big financial companies take a good cut along the way. I'd also point out to you that carbon emission permits or an invitation to control our lives fairly minutely. Not only do you breathe out carbon dioxide, but virtually all energy used at the moment involves emissions of carbon dioxide. So these things will become pervasive and inescapable. So to get a clue what's going on here, let's do what journalists should do, and that's follow the money. I'll point out to you that skeptics in big oil spend around about $2 million a year on their skeptical activities. That includes Exxon's spend of $23 million for 10 years to 2006. Big Gun, on the other hand, spends about $6 billion currently a year on climate change activities. About half of that is in research, and the other half is in technology-related stuff. Technological uh, research that wouldn't exist unless we were concerned about emitting carbon. The finance industry, on the other hand, did $120 billion worth of trade in carbon credits last year. System hasn't really started yet. Everything will be a trillion by 2012, and we'll go quickly after that. Now, given that these guys typically net 1 to 5% in their trading profits, we're already looking at 10 to $50 billion a year in, uh, in carbon profits from big trading companies, who often have the big banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. So that would suggest, this, this paper trail, this money trail, would suggest that it might be that 
big financial companies are driving the carbon reduction emission agenda. <coughs> Why not have a carbon tax? You could have a carbon tax that replaced some or all of our income tax and it would conserve non-renewable resources. Regardless of whether you believe carbon is heating up the atmosphere, it's probably a good idea. The fact that we're letting the bankers in there trade these things first and take off their profit is a bit of a red flag of what's going on. The paper aristocracy would not benefit from a carbon tax. But now we're putting in... Notice that our governments aren't offering carbon taxes. They're only offering trading schemes. Isn't that, isn't that curious? Since we're low on time, I'm just going to whiz through these. Uh, an ETS is created out of thin air. The permits themselves have no intrinsic value. They're only given value by government. They're traded by big organisations for profits. Uh, they're manufactured by a, a, a partnership of government and, fi uh, and financial firms. Bureaucrats get the control. The financial firms get easy profits from captive clients. That's us. And you get to pay and do as you're told. There'll be a lot of uh, protecting your economic privilege by, by, by uh, lobbying. And finally, the point I'd like to fix on last is that governments now have a huge incentive to sorry, mismeasure global temperature so as to justify these permits. Point out to you that one way that governments uh, handle problems, particularly like unemployment and, uh, and inflation, is to mismeasure them. Both unemployment Inflation measured very differently now from what they were in the 1970s, and both taxes have lowered the numbers considerably. So governments will soon have a global agreement restricting carbon emissions. That's coming up in Copenhagen in a, few, in a couple of months' time. It will probably lead to taxes, trading profits, and maybe some early form of world government because we'll need some sort of enforcement. And to justify this, we're going to need rising temperatures. So welcome to the future of the world. Systematic, systematic cheating of temperature data to justify taxes, profits, and world government. Well, guess what? It's already started. It's been going about 10 years. You probably can't see it, but in that photograph, there's a temperature, official temperature, US temperature uh, thermometer in that box there. It's next to air conditioners. It's near uh, asphalt. There's a mobile uh, phone tower broadcasting uh, a bit of radiation around the place. 89% of the official US government thermometers fail their own sighting requirements because they're too close to artificial heat sources. 50% of the world's official government temperature measuring uh, thermometers are at airports. This is Rome Airport. That's a, that's a jet. There's a thermometer there. <laughs> ocean temperatures. No one's been able to measure ocean temperatures until 2003 when we had a program called Argo. They're big boys. They can sit on the surface of the ocean. Every now and then they dump them down to a couple of thousand metres, come up again, then radio back their results. The problem is the system is very opaque. It's very hard to get this data out, and that's, that's the results we got out about a year ago from 2003 to 2008. Those are not even put on a website anywhere. You have to send an email to Josh Willis at Pasadena at, uh, at sorry, JPL, and you have to beg him for the results. They're not made public. The bigger problem, however, is that every now and then they just change the results. Well, I only had a couple of years' worth of data it showed that oceans were cooling. They thought, well, that's no good. So they just threw out the data from the boys that were showing cooler results. And they had some reason for doing so. Well, perhaps that's, perhaps that's reasonable, perhaps it's not. 
We got this data out of them in 2008. Now in 2009, they've changed that. that, that that's gone away. And now when it goes to about there, so it tends to show more of an upward trend. How do you know they did that? Which bit in particular? After the results. Because they said so. Oh, sorry, look, seriously. Um, Josh Willis is, is on the web in several places saying we decided to omit the results from these boys. And he gave a number of technical reasons, which are. You can't really judge from the articles whether they're correct or not. And the point is that they keep all these things opaque. You can't see what's going on as an outsider. You think, well, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. But here's the thing there have been about 10 or 15 adjustments to various global data sets like this over the last 10 or 15 years, and all of them make global warming look worse. Not one of them went the other way. By chance alone, you'd expect some technical adjustments to make it look warmer or cooler or in both directions, but it doesn't happen. You've probably heard of the hockey stick graph. That's the hockey, the hockey stick graph like a North American hockey stick. Temperatures were flat for ages and ages and ages, and in the last few years they went up like crazy. That's been around for about 10 years. Well, about three, three or four weeks ago, the authors of that hockey stick graph were finally made to reveal their data. Until then, they kept it opaque. It was a big secret. Turns out it was based on a few trees in the Yamal Peninsula of northern Russia. It's the peninsula that goes, one of the peninsulas that goes to the Arctic Ocean. Turns out they've done tree ring studies in that part of the world on lots of trees around there, but they restricted it just a few trees, in particular these 10 trees. And of these 10 trees, this is these graphs go from about 1850 up to the present time, only one of them actually shows the hockey strip graph, and that's that one. It's Yamal 6. Yamal 6 is a very special tree, which is a hockey strip graph. Apparently that's evidence that the whole world had fairly uh, level temperatures and looked quite recently and they suddenly took off. It's not to criticise the idea of global warming and whether it's due to carbon emissions per se, I'm just saying there's a fair bit of government cheating involved. Finally, how would you really know if global warming was occurring? It only rose by about half a degree in all of the last century, and you just wouldn't know about it on a personal level. Even if you noticed, for instance, that, you know, something had changed in your environment, did you know, like flowers came out, or, or ice levels, or how many frost days there were per year, or something like that, any perceived cooling just to explain away from the regional variation, like I said, well, but warmer everywhere else. So you never know. It's beautiful. This is a standard to go on for decades. <laughs> um, I've written all that up in, a, in much more detail, and it's available at sciencepeak.com. And also, as a, got published last week, as a rather sticky looking paper at the Science and uh, Science and Policy Institute, which is a website in the US. Sorry for running over time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, David. I just, I can't see our uh, tea and coffee yet at the back, so if um, anybody has any questions for David, if you'd like to, uh, to ask him those now, and I'll go and talk to the uh, tea lady. Uh, uh, how do you know that the temperature is rising? So on the finance and economic side, one sees, and the thing that got left out of this was 1913 when the Fed was established, yes. the cabal of private bankers, and yes. I think Jacob Gordon figured pretty highly in any profile of that event. The Creature from Jet Lines is a good book about all that. 
So the US public, and by implication the rest of the world, because it's the global engine of the world's failure of the uh, sterling to the reserve currency after three world wars broke in the UK. By implication, everyone is involved in this giant scam on the money side. I know there's a man free market economics that practice the Austrian school way forward. I mean, good all about that, and I think that was very clear of foot, and I read a lot too, and it all meshes. And I hadn't really followed your uh, government cheating and bogus, and, but I somehow felt the whole global warming. Since Moncton, have you listened to Moncton and watched his... He said he, that he gave us an alert recently with the Copenhagen Treaty coming up with the Mortis Institute World Government. Yes, he warned the US not to sign up to what was being reported Copenhagen because they knew the last vestige of freedom, which echoes your point about the next big scam. Because I think the Fed is running out of the ability to just print pictures of dead presidents and have people go along thinking that their lives are worth living and they'll be able to retire. So I think the next scam is coming. And, and energy is a really, really good thing. It's like food. You have to have it for shelter. And, Anyway, that's all the problems. We've heard about all those, and that's all the scams and all the uh, tricks that have been pulled on Joe Public. But I'm interested in what's the way out. We don't have democracies in the world. We have fake democracies. In the UK, you get to vote once every four years. We just had the most disastrous run of what we call Labour governments. And I grew up very left wing, like most of us do, and then change when you get older to something that's a bit more free market oriented, but hopefully not too politically contentious. I don't believe in extreme right at all. However, I just see that we're constantly being forced into cul-de-sacs and having to take the crap that's handed down from the J.P. Morgans, the masters of the universe, and now it seems to be both the scientists that will posture in government positions. I would just like to hear what on earth can be done to establish some positive way forward for Germany. Has anyone got anything on that? Because I think we can have four days now on how everyone gets the wall pulled over their eyes and how we're all victims. I'd really like to know what's the way out. I think what Dan says um, is quite right in, in reliance on gold. Everyone's here, here because of gold. It's a manipulated market. Yeah. You read the Garter stuff and all the rest, I'm sure everyone's aware. It's a totally manipulated market. There's no free market. Um, well, I, I think that's that change. Um, but I, I think it's, it's really important. Um, one of the main thrusts of what Dan was saying, one of the things that Charlie was saying, is that we've got Chile, we've got Middle East, North Africa, we've got South America. Now, these, if you like, are running um, policies of 50 years ago in terms of the Western world. Um, they're not welfare economies. Now, these things are basically going to take control of the world. There's, there's a lovely story that you've probably heard that in, in uh, 1000 AD, India and China made up 75% of the world GDP. They went to sleep for 100 years, the 20th century, the way to the just going to go. But the whole story of everything you've heard today is to do with interventionism. No, no, no. And those governments intervene automatically in people's but lives. It's, it's very different because they're in basic industries where we're talking about social welfare, welfare states, the welfare states are going to fall under. And, and, and the way out really is these, these countries are, are basically going to leave. It's because they're just on the shadow path of the same moon curve. They've got the same curve and they control people. And oh. China controls its populace to the same degree. I spent a lot of time in China and Beijing particularly, and it's a marvellous growth story. But it's the old danger of people. It doesn't care what kind of cat is, it's what the cat is like. You can call it capitalism, you can call it communism, but it works. And you can call it. Call it. But those people's lives are controlled. So they're just on the, that shadow side of the learning curve until they get up to the Western where it becomes a welfare. Well, I think that, uh, I don't know if they're 
my, my position is that uh, people who look for systemic solutions are, uh, are probably barking up the wrong tree because that's part of the argument I made. But the other thing is, it, it goes to this uh, idea of energy as well. That we're not talking about closed political systems or closed economic systems. They evolve and they change. And uh, as, as Barry pointed out, the Communist Party has been in power for 70 years in China or 50 years or whatever. And China's a 5,000 year old culture. There's no guarantee that in 50 years it's going to look anything the same. That, that economies, especially the more free they get, are more dynamic. Uh, so we couldn't, we shouldn't assume that they'll evolve in the same way. No, I agree with that. But so, nowhere do we see where Austrian economics has ever been practiced and practiced successfully. It's, it's a theory. Well, it's I think it's practiced. Field, but I, hasn't. I don't think you look to a lot of people. I don't vote, and a lot of people said, "Why don't you support Ron Paul?" And I said, "I don't think that it's a theory you try to get implemented at the state level. It's something you do with your life. It's the way you uh, interact with the world, and whether or not you're, uh, it becomes public policy isn't the point. Because as you pointed out, it probably won't be." So what your job is as a person is how do you take care of your family and your friends and yourself in a world that's hostile to your interests? But you live under an overarching government, whether you choose Australia, Canada, the US, or yeah. Well, he said we have to take a break, but I'm happy to talk about that.